And now, uh, people of God, let's open our copies of God's Word once again to Mark's Gospel as we work our way through this Gospel. Chapter 7, beginning with verse 24, verses 24 through 30. Mark chapter 7. Let us now bow before the Lord our God. Heavenly Father, help each of us by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ to hide ourselves in the blood atonement, that each of us may be under the value of the blood of Christ, that we may claim no merit of our own, but only the merit of Christ. And as we look at these simple miracle accounts that are given to us, we know that they are very deep and very profound and very wonderful. And we ask that especially this morning we will see something of the nature of saving faith and of the greatness of the gospel that is to be proclaimed to the nations. But most of all, that we would see the grandeur, the wonder of Christ himself and of the gospel message, and that we will be humbled once again that we have the privilege of reading the word, hearing it proclaimed, coming to the table, singing thy praises, offering our prayers, and that we, Heavenly Father, who know the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, will more and more be prepared for and long for that time in which we will be with the departed saints worshiping before the throne. And after the resurrection day, when all of the people of God will have been raised from the dead or those who remain caught up at that moment when Christ returns, that Jesus Christ would be exalted in that day and that we would long for it. We want within our hearts to desire more than anything that Jesus Christ, our Lord, be praised. Help us to live that way. Grant us the power of the Spirit to live after the pattern of new obedience in Christ. And bless those today who are far from thee to hear the word of God savingly, some of them for the first time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's word and stand. This wonderful narrative, Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 24. This is the word of God. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed First, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
people of God, this wonderful narrative can only be understood if we remember what has gone before it in the passage that we saw last week, in which the Lord Jesus in verse 15 of this chapter said, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And so here we have a conversation between Jesus and a Gentile woman, a woman who lives in a pagan land, who would have been considered by the Jews to have been unclean. And it applies what we saw last week. It points to the ultimate mission of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore to the salvation that he has brought to the world. Jesus' Galilean ministry has concluded now, and he retires with his disciples, or at least attempts to, so that he may teach and instruct them. And his Perean ministry begins right here in chapter 7, verse 24, all the way chapter, through chapter 10, verse 52. He's now more with his disciples. He wants to teach them and prepare them for what is ahead. However, even now, he cannot escape the crowds. And so the first thing we see as we come to the text this morning is Jesus spreading fame. Jesus spreading fame. Jesus enters Gentile territory. He has gone northwest into Phoenicia. In chapter 9, verses 30 to 31, we read of how the Lord Jesus was trying to find time with his disciples in order that he might teach and instruct. And so that's what's happening here, undoubtedly. He wants to teach them. He wants some privacy with them to reflect on what they had seen, what they had had heard, so that they may see more clearly who he is and what he came to do, and to prepare them for the hardship that they will face as he goes to the cross and for the glory that awaits as he will be raised from the dead. But his fame was known here too. And all the way back in chapter 3, in verse 8, we read that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem in Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. So already, that's Tyre and Sidon. This is, relatively speaking, the area in which Jesus is ministering here in this chapter 7. These people already know about him. His fame has spread. And he could not, verse 24 tells us, he could not be hidden. Jesus attempted to keep down his fame so that he might move about more freely and ultimately because it points to the fact that it would be after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that his mission would be understood. Then there will be worldwide proclamation of who Jesus is and why he came and of the good news of Christ. And that being the case, it is now our goal as Christians and our goal as a church to spread his fame. Though Jesus can only be known by faith, There is no hiding the revelation of Jesus Christ. His resurrection from the dead did not happen in a corner. And how wonderful when that revelation comes to be known because there is no hiding Jesus in our lives. Because others around you see Jesus in your life. And if we, the people of God, know our debt to the cross, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. And we will tell others about the Lord Jesus. Do you not know that? Do you not sense it? Do you not feel it? 
Can we be silent when we have this great good news to share with others and when we have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? So it's in the context of the spread of Jesus' fame that we see, secondly, a Gentile woman pleads with Jesus. Verses 25 and 26, but immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, Mark has a briefer account than Matthew, and it's Mark with which we are concerned. One of the contributions of Mark is what happens at the end of this account, the end of the narrative, in a profound way, showing the significance of what has just taken place. But we have here a woman, and she's a Gentile, and she has a daughter that is in deep, deep need. And she has a deep sorrow in her heart for her little daughter. Using the diminutive, by the way, my little daughter. So she was a young daughter. We do not know the age, but she was a little daughter. And her need would bring uncleanness and ritual impurity. There she is. She is a Gentile woman. They are in a Gentile land. She is coming to the Lord Jesus and speaking to him herself ceremonially would be considered unclean to any Jew. And this need would have brought further uncleanness. And the story is calculated to illustrate that what God has declared to be clean, no man should call unclean. It is calculated to demonstrate that he has a plan for the Gentiles, a plan for the nations. So the stress here is on the non-Jewish character of this woman who brought this need. With Greek culture, speaking Greek language, a Gentile, a pagan from Syrophoenicia, that part of, that part of Phoenicia that was, that was under the authority of Syria. And in verse 25, it's underscored when it says that literally the child, this little child, this little daughter has an unclean spirit. In chapter 7, 1 through 23, this is a point not to miss. This whole idea of uncleanness and how now he will deal with an unclean spirit. So the daughter is demon-possessed, this little girl. And the text is sparse. But we ask the question, what would life have been like for this woman and her little daughter? And though we cannot know for sure, we might have a hint of it by by turning to chapter 9, and you might want to do that. In chapter 9, we have the demon possession of a boy, and in verses 17 and 18, uh, someone from the crowd, this is chapter 9, 17, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And then in verses 20 through 22 of this ninth chapter, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Well, don't you see, something like this might well 
have been happening also to this little girl, to this little daughter of this Syro-Phoenician mother. Prostrate at Jesus' feet in grief, in anguish, in respect, in dependence. And the Greek text indicates that she asked over and over, it's an imperfect indicative, over and over that Jesus would cast out the demon. Translated here, she begged Jesus to cast out the demon. And it's quite remarkable that this Gentile woman would, in desperation, kneel at Jesus' feet. Now, I don't know how. She knew something about the Lord Jesus. She knew that he was there, and I don't know how, but it really does seem as if she understood something of Jesus' significance as the Savior of the world. At least she knows that he is her only hope, though she is a Gentile. In her desperate need, only he can help her. And I wonder, have you seen this? Have you Gentiles gathered here this morning? Have you seen your desperate need of the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and in death? Well, we see thirdly that Jesus calls her in faith, or surely we should say calls for faith, or calls for her faith to show forth. So Jesus calls for faith. And there's this brief exchange that's anything but diplomatic. Jesus seems uncharacteristically harsh in this passage. In verses 26 and 27, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. You might expect Jesus to say, I'm just full of compassion for you. I, I, I want to do this for you. But how does he respond? In verse 27, he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, Jesus called this woman, her daughter, a dog. You see, the Jews call the Gentiles dogs. I remember hearing a Jewish evangelist once when I was a boy saying to us Gentiles in the congregation, well, you know, you're you're, you're just Gentile dogs. But uh, he went on and on about that. Well, here we find Jesus speaking in this way that seems to us very harsh. But it's a diminutive. It's the little dogs that he says. It's the household pets. But still, it's no compliment, is it? And he's still referring to Gentiles as dogs and to the Jews as children. And if you read the narrative with any kind of attention, you cannot help but be surprised and maybe even shocked that Jesus addresses this needy woman with these words. In redemptive history, the Lord came to Israel first, and even the pet dogs should not be treated like the children. The children are first, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, we just read in Romans 1.17 just a few moments ago, as Paul was reflecting on this very truth. So at this point, Jesus makes no promise to her, He compares the children of Gentiles to dogs, and you must see that at least on the surface, Jesus seems to be refusing her. The children of Israel in the Old Testament are designated children of God. He has come to Israel first. The time of the blessing for the Gentiles has not yet come. Let the children be fed first. 
We can't allow the dogs to carry off the children's bread, after all, can we? But first, and I can't help but think that when he says first, that he's opening the door a bit for her, drawing out faith that's already been supernaturally granted to her by the Holy Spirit. He's calling for faith, opening the door to faith to be expressed on the part of this Gentile woman. First, let the children eat. Yes, first, that is, maybe that means that there's something there for my daughter. So Jesus is harsh, but he's harsh with a purpose. Of course, the first purpose being that Israel has priority, that Jesus didn't come without a connection to redemptive history. The kingdom must be first proclaimed to Israel. And also, we can't know anything about Jesus' tone of voice or anything about his body language and how that also may have been used to draw this woman out in expression of her faith. But Calvin is surely right when he says, Jesus intends not to extinguish the woman's faith, but rather to whet her zeal and influence her ardor. And by the way, our Lord Jesus Christ, who loves us so, still knows what we need in the responses that he gives to you and me, the way in which he answers our prayers, sometimes by seeming not to answer our prayers or bringing even more difficulty and more trouble into our lives. What sorts of responses will build our faith? What sorts of responses will call us from our idols? His responses may still seem harsh to us as they must have seemed harsh to this woman, but only to be kind. He is harsh only to be kind. And we cannot be saved unless we know that we need saving. And it seems to me also here that the Lord Jesus is underscoring the depth of her need and showing her the need even more deeply. The Lord in his providence brought circumstances into her life that made her sense her helplessness. And now the response of Jesus makes her feel all the more within her heart that she is helpless without Jesus. And that was the point about the law last week as we looked at that portion about uncleanness. That we are preaching to a world. We're preaching good news, gospel to a world that doesn't know it needs good news, that doesn't need the gospel. That's how they think. And until one sees his hopelessness, he will not come to Christ in faith. As one of the old theologians used to say, we cannot sew the heart with the silk thread of the gospel until the heart is first pierced with the needle of the law. Or as Spurgeon somewhere said, when self's strength is gone, God's strength will come in. Who here needs to come to the end of yourselves, to the end of your own strength? Who here needs to come to the end of your self-dependency? Who here needs to come to the point that you say, I have nothing to offer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross 
I clean. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. But some of you, perhaps here, are still caught up in thinking, there's something I can do, something I can contribute, some merit that I have, I can do and live. But do and live will never bring you peace. Never. You will always be agitated in the heart when you live that way. Thomas Chalmers said there are only two ways of being religious. One way is to try to put God in our debt. The other is simply to acknowledge the greatness of our debt to God. And those of us who acknowledge the greatness of our debt to God do so because we know we have no help from anyone else and no grace from anyone else and no merit from anyone else. No one can, so to speak, heal my little daughter, take care of my deepest need, except Jesus Christ, our Lord. How then does the Gentile woman respond? The fourth thing we see, the needy woman's response. And we find it here in verse 28, this magnificent response. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And she's right. This she acknowledges. Yes, to the Jew first. I'm not questioning that, Lord. She doesn't detract one whit from Israel's privilege. She does not get her back up. She doesn't act as if she has a right to his help. She acknowledges the truth of Jesus' remarks. But she says in all humility, in desperation, and in true faith, the crumbs dropped by the children are intended for the dogs. The dogs eat the crumbs at the same time that the children are eating when they drop the crumbs for the little dogs to eat. Let the children be fed, Lord, by all means. I'm not asking for a loaf of bread. I'm only asking for a crumb. That's all I want. Just a scrap from the table for the sake of my little daughter. And now don't miss something. That in this section of Mark, there's a, a theme, and that theme is the theme of bread. Remember after the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, verse 52, that the disciples were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And the theme will come up again in chapter 8 when there's the feeding of the 4,000. But now in between, this Gentile woman comes to Jesus and seems to understand what the Pharisees don't and up to this point what the disciples don't. She understands about bread. She understands that she needs bread, if but a crumb, and that Jesus alone can provide it. Ultimately, she seems to understand that Jesus himself is that bread. He's certainly the giver of that bread. I don't mean that she had a well-thought-out theology, but she gets the center of it all. She understands it at the core how can she know this when the disciples know, do not know it? How can she understand this when the Pharisees and scribes talk about God all the time, but they don't know it? And the disciples are with Jesus and they don't know it. I'll tell you how she can know it. Because of the old expression, faith is born of need. Faith is born of need. It's when God shows to us in our circumstances of life our need 
that saving faith is supernaturally granted. Not as a preparation on our part, but what God is doing in our lives in order that we might see our desperate need of Him. This woman knew her need, knows that her daughter has this need of the crumb of bread from the table. And when we celebrate the table this morning, we will come, I hope, with faith born of need that sees in this bread the symbol of Jesus himself upon whom we feast by faith. There's something else here. There's the election of God. I thought of this passage in Luke chapter 4 when I was working on this. Uh, that's, that's the passage in which Jesus is rejected at his hometown of Nazareth. And he made this statement. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now that's the same area where Jesus is now speaking to this woman whose daughter has this great need of deliverance from a demon. And it's this woman to whom Jesus was sent. How many other women perhaps had daughters or sons or family members that were possessed of demons? And then I remembered also John chapter 10, in which the Lord Jesus says in verse 16, this is the passage in which he's speaking of himself as the good shepherd, And he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so, he says, I'm going to add Gentiles to my flock. I'm going to bring them in. So this meeting of Jesus and this woman, it's no accident. God in council decreed this day. And it foreshadowed in this rare personal incident the care of this Gentile woman and her little daughter. It encapsulates for us the promise that Jesus will save the nations. That he will, and that at the end of the age, according to Revelation chapter 5, there will be the singing of this praise, Worthy are you, saying to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you will make them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's what's happening here. There's already a hint of that, a promise of that. And then we see, fifthly, a final thing. We see Jesus' boundless authority. So this Gentile woman's response delights Jesus, and we read it in verse 29, back here in Mark 7. And Jesus said to her for this statement, well, what's the statement? Verse 28, but she answered, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. In Matthew 15, the account of this, it says, O woman, how great is your faith. And so he is saying to us that because of this statement that she made, her faith is now manifest. Here, the woman's statement is pointed, intended 
to show how true and real and even great was her faith. So that in verse 29, Jesus speaks of the casting out of the demon as a past event already done. He says in verse 29, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Jesus speaks of casting out the demon. It's already accomplished, and she goes home. Verse 30, she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Perfect active participle meaning the demon was gone never to return. It was gone for good. William Hendrickson makes a couple of comments that I want to share with you. He said, if today's parents love their children, love their Lord and their children, as she did, what a vast amount of harm would be prevented and what a mountain of blessings would result. And he goes on to say, if a woman born of a Gentile put her little knowledge of the Lord to such good advantage, what is required of those who have received far greater privileges, which is true of all of us here. Now remember the purpose of the miracle. When a healing takes place in the Gospels, it is always a sign that the kingdom of God is here, that the messianic age has been inaugurated. And here it points to Gentile inclusion in the kingdom. It also points to the restoration of the image of God, broken in man, broken by the fall. The demon-possessed daughter, her womanhood also restored in Christ in a world that could have cared less. And maybe there's some woman here and your womanhood has also been broken by the fall and the world could care less, even encourages the brokenness. Come to Jesus by faith. And the way the miracle was performed shows in a remarkable way Jesus' authority. Because quite clearly, his authority knows no bounds. He doesn't even have to be present to cast out the demon. And now as risen and ascended Lord, as mediator, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. And his purpose is to save the elect from every tribe and nation for whom he gave his life and shed his blood in particular redemption. And we, we who have trusted in Christ are a fulfillment of the promise that is here. Are we willing to believe that his authority knows no bounds even when the story does not turn out the way we might like it to and to believe it's all part of the plan to redeem his children, to redeem his people? So, you are noticing, aren't you, that we have a missionary text here? that we have in this wonderful narrative a preliminary hint that Jesus has come to be the Savior of the world, that Mark is inviting Gentiles to read on and to enter into new life, and he's calling us to do the same. He's calling us forward to the cross and to the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord. In other words, Mark is writing to Gentiles, and as far as I know, it may not be the case, but as far as I know, that's all of us who are here. In other words, what we read here is peculiarly for you and for me. The time of the entry of the Gentiles in large numbers into the people of God 
follows the cross and the resurrection. Easter saw the dawn of the last day, as someone rightly has said. Gentiles are now invited to eat bread at God's table, not as children and little dogs, but Gentiles are now called to eat at the table as children. Do you eat that bread? Do you come to Christ in faith? The Pharisees miss it. A Greek, Syrophoenician, pagan, by grace, gets it. The scribes and the Pharisees were out while they were in. She was in while she was out. And the text in this part of Mark stresses uncleanness. And in order for Jesus to come and claim you as clean, he had to go to a cross and he had to take our uncleanness, our real uncleanness, not ceremonial uncleanness, our real guilt he had to take in order that we might be cleansed from our guilt justified and sanctified through his work. Now here's the missionary fulfillment. When he's lifted up, he will draw all men, that is to say Jews and Gentiles, unto himself. The inclusion of the Gentile world follows the cross and resurrection, but here today we have a glimpse at what would come when Jesus showed his compassion his power, his salvation to a Syrophoenician mother and her little daughter. Maybe one here will say, if he did this for them, maybe he will do it for me. I now come in faith to Christ. I trust him for my deepest need, the cleansing of my sin, and that I might live to his glory. And I say as Christ's ambassador, come. I say in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Come to Christ as Savior of the world. Come in faith. You say, what will that, what will that matter coming in faith. Faith is the instrument, the alone instrument that receives the salvation of Christ. It contributes nothing. It only receives. Now, this woman had simple faith. Do you? Let me tell you why this matters. I'll illustrate it to you this way. There was a Scottish missionary in China. His name was David Sandeman. And he was there in a cholera epidemic, and he became desperately ill, and he was on his deathbed. He died, age 32. He was on his deathbed. And as he was dying, a friend said to him, how are you? How are you? How would you answer that question if you were today on your deathbed? How are you? 32 years old, dying of cholera in a strange land, how are you? He said, how are you? Let me ask that question of you. How are you? How are you? And do you know what he answered? 
I will tell you what he answered. He said, I am head to foot righteous. By which he meant, from head to toe, my whole being is completely clothed in the righteous merit of Jesus Christ who won that for me by his perfect life and his sacrifice on the cross. I am justified so that all is well with my soul when I die, as I am now dying, when I die, I want you to know I am head to foot righteous. And I want every one of us to have that testimony. I want you to be able to say, now and forever, I want to be able to hear from you on your deathbed, Pastor, you don't have to worry about me. I'm head to foot righteous because of what Jesus did for me. Amen and amen.